We continue on through the prophets this morning, and we turn to the uh, last book of the Bible, the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Listen now for God's word to you. See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as the refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift to bear witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in their wages, the widow and the orphan, against those who thrust aside the foreigner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. In the classic movie, A Christmas Story, nine-year-old Ralphie Parker lives with his two parents and his younger brother in 1940. And all that Ralphie wants for Christmas is one thing, the Red Rider carbine action 200-shot BB gun. I can't remember. I tried to remember the whole thing, but I couldn't remember the whole thing. He wants that BB gun for Christmas, and it's all he can talk about the entire Christmas season. For a school assignment, writing a letter to Santa Claus, he writes that he wants the BB gun. To his mom, he says, I want the BB gun. And then he fights his way to the mall Santa to make his one Christmas wish. And of course, what does every adult in his life say when he tells them what he wants for Christmas? That's right. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. I can tell who's actually seen the movie more than once. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. So after a series of hysterical mishaps, we finally arrive at Christmas morning and uh, there is uh, Ralphie's brother sleeping on the wrapping paper after all the presents have been opened and Ralphie sits there between his two parents, and his old man asks him, did you get everything you wanted for Christmas? And Ralphie says, almost. And you can sense the disappointment in his voice. And then the old man says, why don't you go look over by the desk over there? And Ralphie gets up, and he finds the package shaped like that Red Ryder BB gun, and he opens it up, and there it is, the the only thing he wanted for Christmas and of course, he's got to go out and try it right away. He's running, rushing out the door. His mom's trying to put his coat on him, and he sets up the target, and he shoots a BB towards it, and it, of course, what happens? It ricochets, and it hits him in the eye, or right below the eye, right? And you can hear that refrain of every adult in his life in the background. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Um, and in the process, his glasses fall off his face, and he says, there is no swifter retribution than for a kid who has lost his glasses. Um, Those of you who grew up with glasses know that to be true. And so as he's looking for his glasses, he steps on them and cracks the lenses, and he panics for a moment until he comes up with a a plan. He starts crying, and he tells his mom that an icicle fell and hit him in the face, and that's why he's got the mark. And 
They're none the wiser. So later on that night, he's laying in bed holding that BB gun right next to him and declaring that it was the best Christmas he ever had. This is a season of great expectations, right? We have huge expectations, enormous expectations. But what happens when you show up on Christmas morning and all the presents are unwrapped, but you didn't get that one thing you really, really wanted? Or worse yet, what happens if you do get the thing that you wanted and you end up doing what every adult in your life told you you were going to do and you shoot your eye out? What happens in this season where you uh, expect to go and visit family and for it to be restful and rejuvenating and then you show up after the new year more tired than ever? Or what if you expect time with family to be enjoyable and instead it's just a lot of fighting and arguing? What about in this season where you have all of these expectations of all the things you're going to do in the lead up to Christmas, but of course you've planned way too much and you run out of time? What happens when you can't do everything you expected or wanted to do? Or what happens when you're a young boy and you wake up at 6 a.m. on Christmas morning, desperate to open up all the Christmas presents, and your sister insists on sleeping until 10 (laughs) o'clock? And you beg your parents, please, can we wake her up? They say, no, let her sleep. What happens in a season when there are expectations, this prophetic expectation of what the return from exile is going to look like, and yet it looks nothing like what the prophets imagined it looking like? This is where we find ourselves this morning in the prophet Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. That Malachi speaks to a people who have been back from Babylonian captivity for quite some time now, Just how long they've been gone is a matter of scholarly debate. It could be at least 20 or 22 years because the the temple has been rebuilt at this point and Malachi addresses issues around that. But it could also be as much as 100 years after the return from exile. We just simply don't know. The fact is, is that these people have been home now for a while. And in that time in exile, they are given a vision, an expectation of what that return home is going to look like. We hear it from the prophets over and over again. We hear it from Isaiah who says, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Those are beautiful words, right? A world remade, sorrow and sighing fleeing away. Not just the return from exile, but this prolonged effect on the entire world. And then from Jeremiah, Jeremiah, who is sometimes known as the weeping prophet. You want to invite him over for Christmas dinner, right? The weeping prophet, but not without reason. He's the weeping prophet because he watches the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And he bears a lot of that trauma within himself. And yet even Jeremiah is able to capture the vision of coming home. He says, The days are surely coming, says the Lord. When I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is a name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. There it is that. That vision of justice and righteousness, a remade world, a world of of equity and wholeness, this promise of what returning from exile is going to look like. 
And then from the prophet Zephaniah in a passage that we'll hear next week, he says, At that time I will bring you home, and at that time I will gather, gather you, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. There it is, this prophetic dream that is born in the darkness of exile, this bright, illuminating, shining vision of what returning home is going to look like. Justice and righteousness, joy and dancing, everlasting joy and dancing, wholeness. All of this is promised. And for the 70 years of exile, the people of God hear this over and over again. That you can imagine their expectations rising. Wondering, imagining, what's it going to be like to be back in the, the land that God gave to us? To be worshiping in the temple. You can imagine these children hearing stories from their parents and their grandparents at Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur about what this is going to look like, what worshiping in the temple is going to look like. And then finally, after 70 years, the Persians conquer the Babylonians and the great emperor Cyrus assumes the throne and he issues an edict that all of these former exiles of the Babylonians are to return back home, including the Jews, and they are given a commission to go back and to rebuild the temple. What was that journey home like? Was there an extra pep in their step? Was there all that singing and dancing for joy as the prophets imagined? What was that like? But of course, they get there and they go to the place where the temple once was, and it's just a pile of rocks. Their, their homes, the places where they used to live, are just burned out shells of their former lives. Nothing looks as they imagined it looking. It's not the, the dream that they were sold by the prophets. Of course, over time, the temple is rebuilt and, and homes are reconstructed and, and communities are neighborhoods are recommissioned. But none of it looks like the prophets sold them on. None of it looks like this bright, shining vision that they had imagined for themselves. That the, nothing looked quite right. That we, they, they get home and, and nothing looks as they imagined it to look. And so the question becomes, what happens when the prophetic dream doesn't look as you imagined it looking? The great African-American poet Langston Hughes, in, one, in his famous poem Harlem, asks this. He asks, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crusts and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? What happens to a dream deferred? What happens to a dream put off and not realized? Well, for the people that Malachi speaks to, it simply means just kind of giving up on the dream altogether. The scholar Alan Gregory says that uh, after years of bad taxation and a, and a poor economy and, and rampant injustice, the people just simply give up on the dream, stop pursuing it. That everywhere Malachi looks, he sees people who are no longer pursuing the vision sold to them by the prophets. He sees injustice, he sees lying in the courts, he sees the vulnerable, vulnerable being taken advantage of. What happens to a dream deferred? What happens when that prophetic vision doesn't look like you imagined it looking? What happens when worshiping in the temple, the house of God, requires you 
to rebuild it? What happens when a society of no sorrow and sighing requires people to defend the vulnerable, the victims, the ones who sorrow and sigh? What happens when the Messiah does show up 2,000 years ago and yet the world still doesn't look quite right? We're still waiting. What happens to a dream deferred? Well, to a dream deferred, you get Malachi. And apparently Malachi has never taken a pastoral care class a day in his life. Um, He doesn't sit down with his people and say, they're there now, it's okay. He doesn't make them a nice hot cup of tea and wrap them in a blanket and speak tenderly to them. No, he gives them a swift kick in the behind. And he speaks of a, a coming messenger. But who can endure his coming, Malachi says? Who can remain the same as they are when he shows up? Because in one hand, he's got the Fuller's soap. Fuller's soap is this lye-based soap. It's a very caustic detergent meant to bleach out impurities and cloth. And then the other hand, he's got the refiner's fire, this hot air force fire that burns white hot, meant to melt metals and bring the impurities to the surface. Fire and soap, that's what you get for a dream deferred. And of course, The temptation is, whenever we read the prophets, is to think that Malachi is talking to somebody else. Somebody else is getting called into the principal's office, but not me, not us. Uh, He's not talking to my group. He's talking to the fundamentalists. Or, depending on what side of the aisle you find yourself on, he's talking to the Republicans or to the Democrats. But he's not talking to me, to us, to my group. I remember when I was a kid in my Uh, My mom had to pile all four of us into the car, all four of her kids, to run errands. Uh, And she'd take us to places that were so boring for kids, like JCPenney's. And and we would misbehave, right? And mom would yell at us, or we'd have a consequence when we got home, or whatever it was. But there was always this sort of sick glee and sick satisfaction to realize mom was talking to one of the other three siblings and not to you. I am not in trouble, right, mom? That's the temptation when we read the prophets, right? I'm not in trouble, right, Malachi? But I think prophetic words function best and really only have meaning when we can allow them to be a sort of mirror that we can hold up to ourselves and see ourselves reflected back in them to realize that, that Malachi is speaking to us. And if we can allow him to do that, if we can allow him to exercise his prophetic ministry, perhaps it will reveal to us all of the places in our own lives where we have been living with a dream deferred, or all of the places we have been complicit or complacent in deferring the dream for other people, that often it's the most vulnerable who live with dreams deferred. It's the poor, it's the hungry, it's the the persecuted, the oppressed, the the foreigner and the stranger among us. They are the ones who live with that dream deferred. And if we can allow Malachi to hold the mirror up to us, to sit us in that refiner's fire, maybe he can restart that dream that is born in the darkness of exile, that dream of justice and righteousness, of wholeness, of love, of, of joy and singing and dancing. Maybe he can restart that within us. came across a quote from the Sufi mystic Rumi who says that, if everything seems to be dark, look again, you might be the light. If everything seems dark, look again, you might be the light. 
And that's the thing about being sat in the refiner's fire is that it makes everything glow. And so you and I might be the light for those who are living with that stuck-on, syrupy suite of a deferred dream. That you and I might be the light for those who are hungry or poor, who are wondering where their daily needs are going to be met. That you and I might be the light for those that feel like nobody loves them, that nobody sees them, nobody cares about them. That you and I might be the light for those who experience oppression and injustice. You and I might be the light for those who are living with unmet expectations. In this season where we have all of these expectations, waiting for God to act, we are reminded that in this space between the first advent, the first time Jesus arrived, and that second advent, that promise that Jesus makes to us to return once again, that we are reminded that our waiting is never passive and never idle, that it always involves doing something. It always involves action and and trying to prepare the way, shining that light. That wherever there is a dream deferred in our world, there is Malachi with that fuller soap and that refiner's fire making us glow once again. And perhaps those of us who glow We are the ones who light the way all the way to Bethlehem, that place where God's dream takes on flesh and blood and appears among us. Thanks be to God. Amen.